I want to uh, to first speak a word of thanks to Nolan and Libby for being our readers this morning, and I want to uh, to ask that you would just give them a round of applause. All right, <laughs> that is that is not an easy thing to do, and haven't they blessed us today with uh, sharing? We appreciate their courage in getting up to the mic. About three weeks ago, uh, someone said to me, you know, this is the best time of year to buy a TV. Now, I was not in the market for a TV, and I did not buy a TV, but I became very interested because they said, you know, leading up to the Super Bowl, they sell the most TVs any other time during the year, and so all of the companies that are in the business of selling TVs, they will put those things on sale. And so I watched the advertisements. You may have picked up on it, too, that television's were being hawked at every corner. In fact, you may have been one of the ones that purchased a television. It's an interesting thing that people purchase a TV that has been advertised to them so that they can watch one of the most commercial events of all time, the Super Bowl. Now, of course, I know you watched it because the Falcons were playing, but everybody else that did not have a dog in that fight were watching it simply to see the new commercials and the halftime show, you know, that extravaganza. It is, it is amazing what a consumerist culture we are a part of. It's so much a part of us, we may not even realize that this is going on. And huge money is spent because it is productive. Um, The typical U.S. consumer, I understand, is bombarded with upwards of 3,000 ads a day. Now, I'm not going to stand around and count those. That's too many to count. But if you can imagine sort of how this happens you'll begin to realize that probably there's some truth to this. If you take all of the commercials, of course, that you see when you're watching TV um, in the mornings or in the evenings, whenever you watch TV, um, you add those up. And if you take any commercial that you might happen to hear on a radio broadcast, if you ever listen to radio when you're in the car or headed somewhere, if you added all of those up, if you added into that Every time you see the emblem of some type of product, and you have to realize that you and I are walking billboards ourselves because our shirts are emblazoned, our shoes are emblazoned with advertisements for these companies as well, and everybody around us is a walking billboard. If you add up all of these, I can sort of conceive that it might be 3,000 ads a day that somehow impact our lives. It's overwhelming to think about. Um, Some of you know what was around before Uh, the internet got started um, when we were uh, fastened to cable TV and there was the beginning of uh, QVC. Does anybody remember QVC, our home shopping network? And you may be saying to yourself, he doesn't realize those things are still going on, still going on. Well, these, these are environments that we allow ourselves to participate in because it is exciting. I mean, if you uh, watch for the, whatever you're looking for, a salad shooter or a Vegematic or 
or a Ginsu steak knife, whatever it might be that has this great meaning, it, if you watch it long enough, it's going to be reduced. Not what? Not $40, not $19.95. For three easy payments of $19.95, you can get what would just fill your heart to overflowing, right? With, uh, with joy. And, and it is emblematic of all of the ways in which we consume because truly it doesn't matter what you purchase, but your purchase actually brings to you this sense of newness. If you buy something new, then you feel sort of new and renewed when you have that with you. I mean, a good illustration for this, of course, is if you buy a new car and then you sit in that car, you smell the smell of the new car, you're driving it down the road, you have this sense of renewal and being in this new vehicle. But it is also the case. I mean, even if you just purchase a new coat or a new pair of shoes, um, there is this sense of newness that builds within your mind about the event until, until whatever it is that you have purchased becomes just a part of life and it gets some age on it as everything does. It does not matter what it might be. It may be even beautiful jewelry. Once it gets some age on it and it is old, you begin to think to yourself, what? I need something new in order to feel the way that I used to feel about this item. And so we find ourselves in this cycle, this cycle that traps us, this cycle that makes us so a part of this consumerist culture. Uh, Mark Buchanan has a, uh, a phrase for it. He says, greed it is the cult of the next thing. And you might not have thought of yourself as being a part of that cult, but truly all of, ourself, all of us here participate to some degree or the other. Greed deceives us and does not allow us very easily to detect its presence. It is one of those deadly sins, it's deadly because it does not present itself so overtly to us. It sneaks in and becomes a part of life when we don't even realize it. Jesus said, you will remember, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I've got a question for you this morning. And it's not meant to be a rhetorical question. I really want an answer to it, okay? And so give this a little thought and then give me your answer. Does abundant, or maybe I should say do abundant possessions equal abundant life? I got about four answers there. I want to hear a little bit. I'm going to ask this question again, okay? I want to hear you again. All right, if Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, the question I have is, does abundant, do abundant possessions equal abundant life? Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better about this situation here. We, uh, we all, though, get caught up in filling our pantries and our closets with things that we thought at one time that we really really needed, right? I, my brother sent me uh, 
he texted me a picture uh, recently. He had gone to uh, visit his uh, grandson and granddaughter up in Richmond, Virginia at Christmas. And one of the toys that his grandson had received uh, from my brother's, my brother's son, my nephew, was Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And, and my brother, all he did was to send me a picture of those Rock'em Sock'em Robots, and he put the word remember, question mark, <laughs> because he was thinking the same thing. He, he was remembering back to when he and I sat on the floor when we were children playing rock'em sock'em robots and how long our parents held on to that piece of plastic just in case, you know, we might want to play rock'em sock'em robots again. Now, how many things are you holding on to? You know, I don't want to get too personal with you and this is rhetorical, so don't answer me on this, okay? But um, what, are, what do your closets look like or your garages? What, what is it at your house that has begun to overtake your life? Until that point that we purge life of, with our yard sales, it begins to control us at a certain point. And then we sell it for pennies on the dollar so that somebody else can put it in their pantry or in their closet until they realize Greed becomes deadly, deadly because it robs us of the very thing that Christ wishes to bring to us, and that is truly abundant living. We concern ourselves with whether we have enough money or whether we have enough things, but does this represent an adequate place for us to invest our lives? What is enough, I would ask you? I knew a lady years ago when we were living in Macon. Uh, she She was nine, a little, I think she was 92 years old. And she lived in a small house on the south side of Macon. She was precious. When I would go to visit her, uh, we would sit down in the front little room. This was not a large house, but the front little room, which was a living room um, in her house. And we would sit on her Victorian era furniture there, you know, and she would, she would say, would you like some tea, preacher, and, or some coffee? She always wanted to serve me something while we were sitting there. And we would chat. One day when we were talking, I asked her about her life. I said, have you always lived in Macon? And she said, for a long time, but not always. She said, in 1927, my husband and I moved from Columbus, Georgia to Macon. And this is the house that we moved into um, in 1927. And then she put her finger up and she said, she said, oh, she said, I want to show you something. And I said, okay. I thought, I wonder where this is going. But she stood up and she got her walker. She turned toward her kitchen, which was just there at the back of the house. And she looked over her shoulder and 
beckoned me to come with her and we moved toward a corner of her kitchen where there was a little uh, thin, a narrow door there and she opened it up and it was her pantry. Um, and she walked into the pantry and she, she beckoned me to come inside the pantry. I thought, where is this going? And, uh, and so we both got inside the pantry and then she pointed and I'd never seen anything like it. It was, it was a light bulb that was hanging from just a cord there in the middle of her pantry. It was hanging from the ceiling. The cord came down and it was, it was screwed in, of course, to the, the fixture there. But it was the light bulb that I had never seen. It was, it was long, it was about this long, and it was shaped in the oddest way, and it was on. And uh, I said, it's on, do you keep it on? She said, all the time. She said, I have not turned it off. I said, don't tell me. She said, since 1927. She said, I brought that light bulb with me from Columbus, and I thought, that is incredible. All it could do was to bathe that room in this amber light. It was very light, but it had been on since 1927. (laughs) All of a sudden, it occurred to me, not just that remarkable light bulb, but the remarkable lady that had never allowed herself to be convinced that she needed fluorescent lighting in that little room. I thought, how do you not do that? How do you not replace that with other lighting over the course of that many years? And the reason was she had committed herself to living a very simple lifestyle there in that place. Oh, me, I'm always replacing something. In fact, if I have the opportunity to replace something, all the much better, I'll go to Lowe's. Don't you love, guys, don't you love to go to Lowe's? Come on, be honest here. There's another advertisement, right? Here we go. <laughs> I, I know, though, that you have a feeling at times that you've gone beyond what could be considered by anyone a simple way of living. And it takes its toll on you. Um, I have heard stories about a man who was very important in uh, this uh, recent uh, times, in recent times in Methodist history. His name was Harry Denman. And he was the, the director of the Board of Evangelism for the United Methodist, for actually for the Methodist Church when he was serving. It was before this became the United Methodist Church. And, and Harry would travel all over the country to speak um, in churches. And he was always dressed to a T um, when he would enter the sanctuary, of course, and he would preach and tell people about Jesus and ask them to make decisions, faith decisions, to follow him, and also to reach out and to share the message of Jesus Christ with others. But I was fascinated to find out that one of the oddities of, of Harry Denman was that he was known as a man of one suit. That suit that he was wearing when he got into the pulpit, whenever you saw him, 
It was the one suit that he owned. When he went home and hung that suit in his closet, his closet was not crowded with a whole bunch of other suits to wear. In fact, they say that when that suit would get in need of a good cleaning and he was traveling, he would go to a dry cleaner and ask if there was a room in the back somewhere where he could sit and wait for his suit to be cleaned before he then put it back on and went on his way. Now, I agree, that's rather odd. But you see where he was going with this, don't you? That his decision to live a simple lifestyle would make his resources available for what the Lord wanted to do with his life. It was a beautiful thing. And this is not just some old-fashioned notion. Adam Hamilton, who is the pastor of the Church of the Resurrection, the largest United Methodist Church in the United States, out in Kansas City, he wrote a book just a few years back that he simply entitled Enough, Enough in which he called United Methodist to reconsider the lifestyles that they lead. Anthony DeMello, an Indian priest of years ago, tells the story about a rich industrialist who came from the north and went down uh, to the southern hemisphere. And when he arrived, he was horrified to find a southern fisherman simply lying beside his boat, taking a nap in the afternoon. And he took the man to task and he said, what are you doing? And the man said, well, resting. And he said, why? And the man said, because I have caught enough fish for the day. And this industrialist said, but you could catch so many more fish. And the man said, but why? And the industrialist said, because when you get more fish, then you can get a motor for the boat that you've got here. And when you've got a motor for the boat that you've got here, you can go further out into the sea and catch bigger fish. And when you bring those back and sell them, then you can sell these nets and get nylon nets. And when you go back out to sea, you can catch even more fish with the nylon nets. And when you come back and sell those fish, then you can buy two boats. And before you know it, you'll have a fleet of boats. And then won't you be happy? And the man that was laying there beside his boat looked at the guy and he said, but I'm happy now. (laughs) And the industrialist just didn't get it. I ask you the question, what is enough? Where does all this go? Even on small scale, there is a sense in which we have to be on our guard. And this is what Jesus said. He said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells this story uh, about this man that comes to him who is wealthy. We don't know how wealthy. Um, He might have been about as wealthy as one of us sitting here in this congregation or all of us sitting here in this congregation. And this person was a very faithful and they kept the commandments and they worshiped and they were faithful 
in as many ways as they were aware to be. And Jesus said, but there is one thing more that I would ask of you that you would sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the scriptures say, as Libby read a little bit ago, that this left the man very sad because it was more than he could bear to do, obviously. More than he could bear to do. And this is not meant to be just a word for those that have more than enough uh, because we get caught in this greed. Greed, uh, this guard must be against all kinds of greed. Um, Bill Heibel says some of the greatest and the greediest people have very little uh, but spend countless hours scheming about how they might get more. Are you one of those people? That you have little, but you spend countless hours scheming as to how you might give more, get more. Greed deceives us, and it will lead. It opens the opportunity for sinful behavior in many other ways that will distract us from the work of following Christ and giving our heart to God. Greed blinds us to what is important. Uh, You remember the story that Dickens tells about Scrooge. In the book, it says that Scrooge was a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And when I look at you, I don't see a bunch of Scrooges, but that just shows how good we are at disguising and being kept from knowing just how greedy we might be. I want to encourage you to be a people who are known for something different. Um, Those of you who have been a part of this church for a long time have heard Stephanie and me talk about John Wesley. John Wesley had three rules. You could repeat them with me in terms of giving, uh, in terms of money. His rules rules were earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and then what's the third one? Give as much as you can. Earn save, give, all that you can. And it's that last one that puts everything in perspective because it is a heart of generosity that will do the banishing of greed among us. And I encourage you to make that your heart. Let it be a part of who you are. Even as we come together for communion this day, I encourage you to make this a part of who you are.